It's been 20 years since 9-11. Today's college freshmen, they weren't even alive then. And with our busy lives and the relentless 24-hour news cycle, we're in danger of letting 9-11 fade away from our cultural memory. We won't let this happen. Iron Light Labs presents the 20 for 20 podcast, 20 heroic stories about 9-11 for the 20th anniversary. I'm Nils Jorgensen. I was a New York City firefighter for almost 22 years until I contracted the rarest form of leukemia from cleaning up Ground Zero and was forced to retire from the job I loved. I'm lucky to be alive. Many of my best friends aren't. But this isn't about me. It's about the heroes of 9-11 and its aftermath who forged good out of evil. Love amidst the taking of 2,977 innocent lives and about an equal number who've died since then from 9-11 related illnesses. Today's story, episode six of 20. The day of September 11th, I just had a really sick feeling in my stomach like I had lost a relative. And at the time, I had a couple cousins who lived in Manhattan. And so my initial reaction was, I hope, you know, my cousins are okay. I hope nothing's happened to them. And once we confirmed that my cousins were all accounted for and they were safe and everything was okay, I just couldn't shake that feeling that I had lost somebody uh, close to me. And it would turn out to be not just someone close to Mariah, but one of the greatest heroes of 9-11. Today, Mariah Jacobson brings us her wild journey of discovering this extraordinary connection. But first, a message about our generous sponsor. And now, let's get back to the story. On 9-11, Mariah was 16 years old and a junior in high school in St. Paul, Minnesota. My feeling on September 11th, 2001, that I had lost somebody, I don't think that was a coincidence. I think that I truly did feel that in my soul. Somehow my my being knew that I had lost somebody. I remember having a conversation with my mom that night, and she said, you know, look, everybody's worked up today. Everybody's emotional, everyone's having a hard time processing what happened, but why are you so inconsolable? And I said, I just feel like I lost one of my parents today. I'm uh, adopted. I was born in St. Paul, Minnesota, January 31st, 1985. And uh, my biological parents at the time were um, college kids and, you know, really were on the fence about, you know, whether they were planning to keep me um, and, you know, kind of start a family together or whether they felt it was better to go their separate ways. And after several weeks of discussion and me being in foster care for six to eight weeks. They ultimately decided that it was best if they parted ways and just, you know, decided to put me up for adoption. So um, at that point, my, uh, my parents, Kathy and Walt Mills, adopted me. And I went to live with them in a suburb of St. Paul. 
and I was the only child that they adopted so I had a very happy childhood. I will say I had a pretty small family though. I, like I said, didn't have any siblings. And you know, my parents just always told me that I was adopted. It was never a big secret. It was just part of the conversation from my earliest days. We always talked about the fact that my biological parents weren't ready to be parents and that they loved me very much. Um, and when I was old enough, I could go meet them if I was interested in doing that. We had very little paperwork about my biological parents. It was a closed adoption. So, you know, essentially what we had was, you know, kind of a physical description of my biological family, their, you know, approximate ages, what they believed their um, ethnic background was, and that was really it. There really wasn't a whole lot of information known to us as I was growing up, and I knew from a young age that I would go and look for my biological parents when I was old enough to do so. And my, my, my parents, my adoptive parents supported that. Uh, they always encouraged that and they said, you know, hey, whatever you wanna do, we support you in that. If you wanna meet them, that's great. We'll be behind you. If you don't, that's okay too. And uh, they always really made it my choice as to whether I wanted to embark on that journey when I was old enough. Um, and there were a lot of times growing up where my parents would, you know, when we would talk about my biological parents, we'd talk about writing letters to them and maybe seeing if there's a way we could pass a note to them or leave it in the file at the adoption agency. I think um, often I would write my biological parents letters and never send them, <laughs> but at least I, it was a way as, uh, as a child for me to really get my feelings out and questions out. Um, but I, you know, I just, I always knew that when I was 19, you know, that I was looking forward to my 19th birthday in a way that a lot of kids, I think, look forward to their 16th birthdays so they can drive or their 18th birthdays so they can, I don't know, get a tattoo or smoke a cigarette <laughs> or 21st birthday so they can buy a beer or whatever. Um, the big the big birthday as I was growing up was always my my 19th birthday because I was so looking forward to, uh, to meeting my, my biological parents. 19 was the age, by state law, where she could request a birth certificate that included the names of her birth parents. Parents who she feared died on 9-11. Now let's get back to that scene of Mariah's mother trying to console her following the attacks. She assured me, well, hey, you know, we have a pretty good idea that your biological parents were from Minnesota and, you know, 9-11 happened out on the East Coast and it was far away from from us and the likelihood that, you know, one of your biological parents would have been involved in these attacks is slim to none. And so, you know, try not to think like that. I'm sure it's fine. And, you know, so I tried to put it out of my brain, but I just couldn't shake that feeling that something bigger than, than I was even aware of had happened that day and that it had impacted me in a way that I couldn't fully comprehend yet. Fast forward to my 19th birthday. I was going to school in Chicago. I was a freshman in high school, or I'm sorry, I was a freshman in college in Chicago. And on my 19th birthday, you know, just as I had always, always planned, I 
filled out the form to request my birth certificate uh, for the Minnesota Department of Health. You know, I'll never forget, it was freezing cold. I'm walking to the bank to get the you know, form notarized so I can drop it in the mail and send it off. Um, and I just felt like I was on this um, cusp of really understanding more fully who I was, where I came from, and finally meeting this family that I had wanted to meet truly my entire life. So I sent the request off on my birthday, and then uh, I was headed home from Chicago Midway for spring break, um, heading back to Minneapolis, and I called my mom and said, hey, you know, I'm at the gate, everything looks good, everything's on time, I'll be there in an hour. And she just seemed very strange. <laughs> my mom just seemed very strange on the phone. She didn't, she wasn't acting like her usual self. Anytime I came home from school, she was always really excited and exuberant. And on this phone call in particular, she just seemed bothered. So I, I didn't quite know what it could be or why she would, you know, sort of have this weird tone to her. Uh, but I asked, hey, mom, I've been meaning to ask, did my birth certificate ever show up at home? And she said, it did, and we'll talk about it when you get here. And I said, oh, so did you open it then? And she said, well, yeah, I did open it, and we'll talk about it when you get here, which, you know, is sort of classic my mom, always opening my mail and <laughs> trying, to, trying to, you know, get in my business the way that moms do. And so I thought, well, why isn't she sharing this information with me? She knows I've been wanting this information forever. Why is she being so, why is she dodging my questions? Why is she acting like this? And I said, oh, well, you know, is it somebody that we know? I thought, well, maybe it's, maybe it's a neighbor or something, or it's somebody that we had encountered at church or school or something like that. And she said, well, no, we don't know the person personally, but we'll talk about it when you get home. And I asked whether the person was famous because I thought, oh gosh, what if this is like, what if this is a person who is like a murderer? Like, what if this is a person who, you know, is known to everybody for killing kids or doing some awful thing? And that, so that was my next thought. Oh my gosh, what if this is a criminal? What if this person is somebody who's made a name for himself or herself or whatever and I'm now associated and related to that person um how do you, how do you live with something like that and she said well no it's not you know it's nothing like that um we'll talk about it when you get here and I just I don't know how it happened or, or why it happened but all of a sudden I just had this thought in my head I bet it's that guy who, you know, I couldn't remember what suburb he was from in Minnesota, but I'd seen his family on TV before. I'd seen his picture in the paper and, and different things. And I just thought, I bet it's that guy who died in 9-11, who was on that plane. And I, I just sat there and I thought, what is his name? You know, before smartphones. And I'm trying to remember, you know, Tom, it's Tom something. It's like Tom something with a B. Tom Burnett, that's who she had this hunch about. And here's his wife, Dina, telling his 9-11 story. We were living just down the street from here in San Ramon. Uh, my husband, Tom Burnett, 
He was a passenger on Flight 93 that morning, coming back from a business trip in New York City. And I have three daughters who at the time were five-year-old twins and a three-year-old. I remember standing in the kitchen preparing breakfast for them and turning on the television. It was very early in the morning, a little after six o'clock. And the first thing I saw was an airplane flying through one of the towers of the World Trade Center. I knew Tom was in New York City, and I remember wondering where he was, if he could be walking around, if he could be hit by the flying debris. Moments later, another airplane flew through the other tower, and I began to get really concerned. I started looking for his flight itinerary, wondering what time he would be leaving New York, what time he would be arriving here, trying to do the math in my mind. Could he be at the airport? Could he be on an airplane? Is he still at the hotel? The telephone rang, and it was Tom's mother. She wanted to know if I had heard from him. And I tried to calm her down. I said, no, but I'm sure that he's fine. While the two of us were talking, the phone rang in on call waiting. It was Tom. I said, Tom, you're okay. And he said, no, I'm not. He said, I'm on an airplane that's been hijacked. It's Flight 93 from Newark to San Francisco. He said, they have already stabbed a guy and they're trying to get into the cockpit. He told me to call the authorities, and he hung up the phone. I stood there not knowing what to do. Who do you call for a hijacking? And I was terrified. I reached for the blue pages in the phone book, started thumbing through notes on the kitchen counter, finally decided to call 911. They connected me to different operators. First the police, then the county sheriff, back to the police, then to the FBI. While I was explaining to the FBI that this is a third plane, I had already seen the two other planes crash, and this was a third airplane, Tom called in on call waiting the second time. I immediately told him about the World Trade Center and he started asking questions. He wanted to know how many airplanes, which airline, who were these people, what did they want, what were they going to do with his airplane. And I just answered his questions as best I could from the television. And I remember his saying, okay, okay. He was very calm. He sounded as if he was sitting at his desk at work. He passed the information on to the people around them, and I could hear them talking to one another. And then he came back to the phone, and he said, it's a suicide mission. He was analytical, gathering the information, trying to analyze the problem, and find a resolution. He told me that he thought they had a bomb. 
And then he said, you know, I don't think they have one. I think they're just telling us that for crowd control. On his third phone call, he told me that he was putting a plan together to take back the airplane. I asked him who was helping him because I knew that he wouldn't try to do anything by himself since the first guy had already been stabbed. And he said, don't worry, there's a group of us. He asked the same questions, wanted to know if I had any more information, and he hung up the phone. And I stood there waiting for him to call back. On his fourth and final call, he said they were waiting until they were over a rural area to take back the airplane. And as we sat there listening, I said to him, you sit down, you be still, be quiet, and don't draw attention to yourself. Well, he didn't listen. He screamed into the phone, no, no, no. If they're going to crash this plane, we're going to do something. He hung up the phone and led the crew and passengers down the aisle and into the cockpit. Tom was the person who organized this counterattack. The group of passengers wielding makeshift weapons out of silverware and boiling water and using the beverage cart as a battering ram rushed the front of the plane and attempted to take back the cockpit. After an intense struggle, just 20 minutes from Washington, D.C., the plane crashed into a field in Shanksville, Pennsylvania, killing all 40 innocent souls and four terrorists on board, and sparing the hundreds, maybe thousands of lives at either the Capitol building or the White House, not to mention sparing what could have been the worst attack on the greatest symbols of our democracy. He and his fellow passengers and crew members were the first to fight back against terrorism. They rose from their seat and they did something. They fought back. And in fighting back, they made a difference. Our government buildings are still standing, and thousands of lives were saved. And now let's get back to Mariah, who three years after the attack, while sitting on a plane, had a feeling that she couldn't get rid of. I called one of my girlfriends and I said, I just got a phone with my mom, my birth certificate is at the house, and I think that Tom guy from the suburbs is my dad. And my friend was like, absolutely not, you know, you're just coming up with crazy ideas right now. Don't freak yourself out. But I just, there was something in my heart of hearts. I just had this feeling, you know, and I'm sitting there thinking, you know, the, the age would be about right. I think he was 40-ish and, you know, that would make sense with how old I was on 9-11. And I remember he had, you know, little blonde girls. And, you know, actually, now that I'm thinking about it, they kind of looked like how I did when I was, when I was young. And I just remember boarding the plane, completely convinced that this guy who I, you know, really hadn't honestly paid a ton of attention to um, in different media outlets and different stories. 
I couldn't shake this feeling like this is the person, like this is the person that I have been searching for. It's gotta be him. And I remember boarding this plane and thinking, this is the last thing that he saw the inside of a plane before he died and just sitting there feeling terrified like what if I'm connected to this person who died on a plane what happens if history repeats itself am I destined to go down on this plane right now or how, you know I just I was so full of fear and all sorts of different thoughts and you know, to me, it wasn't even a question. It wasn't like, well, I gotta go home and I gotta verify this. It was like, I'd or I already knew in my mind that this was the person, you know, I'd been searching for. After the break, we'll find out if Mariah was right. Let's return to Mariah on her moment of truth. When I got to Minneapolis, my mom picked me up. She was weird again you know just very quiet and when we got to the house I said okay so where is it we hadn't talked about my birth certificate like the entire time home um, we just talked about other things and it was just a weird ride and she handed me my birth certificate that had come and I look at it and it says Tom Burnett Jr. Thomas Edward Burnett Jr. And I'm like, that's what it is. That's That was the last name that had escaped me. And I, I looked at my mom and I said, yeah, that's what I thought. And she said, what do you mean that's what you thought? That doesn't make any sense. You had, you know, you would have no way of knowing that. And so I explained to her how, you know, his name, his face had just kind of popped into my mind when I was sitting at the airport and she was just flabbergasted. Speechless, didn't really know what to say to me. So I went down, you know, I'll never forget, I went down in the basement where our, you know, blue iMac computer was, our blueberry iMac. <laughs> I'm sitting there typing his name in to Yahoo or whatever search engine I was using. And the minute his picture popped up and I could actually really look at him I thought that's the first person I've seen my entire life who looks like me um, and he's gone this is the first person you know after years of kind of hearing my adoptive family I'll say which of my cousins look like which of my aunts and uncles and that sort of thing this is the first person now I'm looking at who's who shares, you know, DNA with me and who looks like me and I will never get the chance to meet him. And it was just this very surreal yet soul-crushing realization that, uh, you know, something that I dreamed about literally my entire childhood had slipped through my fingers and was never going to be a reality in a way that I had hoped. When I got my original birth certificate in the mail, we, and when I say we, I mean my my parents and myself, we were kind of like, well, where do we go from here? You know, do we reach back out to the agency and have them help us? And honestly, what we ended up doing was Googling the family. And we found that they, the Burnett family, and we saw that there were still some family members living in kind of the family home in Bloomington. 
And I'll be honest, I don't quite remember how that initial contact went, whether we sent a letter to them or maybe my mom picked up the phone and called them. I have absolutely no idea. Honestly, that's a detail that I don't quite remember. But I do know that, you know, we kind of started with communicating with some of Tom's relatives here in Minnesota. So like my grandparents, my aunts, my cousins. And then, you know, it was kind of interesting those first few weeks. It was like I would get a different email in my inbox from a different person that I hadn't met yet and was kind of trying to figure out who everybody was and how it was related to them. And then eventually I connected with Dina several months later. She and I emailed for quite a while. We met for dinner. It was right around Christmas time. And I was really afraid to meet her because I just thought, you know, what what if she says she doesn't want me to meet my sisters? It was so important to me that I had the opportunity to meet them. But we had a really great conversation and I remember she said to me, well, you know, the girls really want to meet you. How do you feel about going to Mall of America tomorrow and meeting them? And I'll never forget I was supposed to work. <laughs> I was working at a flower shop <laughs> and I was supposed to work the next day, but I thought, oh my gosh, there's no way I can miss out on this. So I called in sick <laughs> and um, I uh, went to Mall of America to go to Camp Snoopy, this big indoor amusement park there. And I was, I don't think I've ever been so afraid to meet little girls before. You know, they were eight and eight and six. I was just like, oh gosh, what if they look at me and think there's no way you're our sister they're too little to really understand how I'm related to them or you know I was just petrified and didn't sleep at all the night before when I met them you know it was just sort of this blur of blonde ponytails <laughs> running towards me and they the entire day it was just you know are you married um you know you why do you have the same ears as I do what's your favorite ice cream? You know, it was just all day long. They had a million questions and, you know, they just completely accepted me with open arms and really no questions whatsoever. It was just, they were so warm and loving and kind. And I probably went home and went to sleep at like six o'clock that night because I was so exhausted after meeting them. But it was such a memorable day and such a great day to finally, you know, again, after being an only child my whole life to meet my sisters and to feel that connection with them right off the bat and to feel loved and feel accepted by them. Um, it was just honestly maybe one of my favorite days of my entire life. When I met Dina and she told me that Tom had told her about me um, on their you know second date or whatever it was, it was so like my heart was so full. It, it, it made me feel like, okay, all those years that I was thinking about him, he was thinking about me. And the fact also that he said to Dina, you know, I have a daughter and she's gonna come back and find me. He was preparing for that. And he was preparing for a life that included me in a way that I, very similar to the way that I was preparing for a life that included him, you know, after just wanting to meet him and planning on that reunion for my entire childhood, it was so validating to know that he was looking forward to that 
reunion as well. And he was looking forward to reuniting with me and having me in his life much in the way that I was looking forward to, to meeting him. And Dina is such a wonderful human. Like she just, it can't be, you really can't overstate what a great woman she is and what a strong woman she is. I mean, true, Tom is, is a hero of mine, but Dina is a hero of mine as well. She is just an incredible woman and I just have so much respect for her and I'm so grateful. But she's such a, a major part of my life and my, you know, that my kids think of her as, as their grandma as well. And it's, yeah, she's, she's incredible. She's phenomenal. What a remarkable and unlikely relationship that Mariah and Dina made. Mariah wasn't even blood to Dina, and yet their family attended Mariah's wedding, they've been on vacations together, and they act like they've known each other all along. And maybe that's because Tom and Mariah's souls were connected from the very beginning. One thing I keep thinking about is Mariah's almost supernatural experiences with her father. It's hard to wrap your head around, and it's also hard to ignore. Whether you tie it back to religion or anything else, I do think that we're all just so much more connected than we even realize. And I do think that he and I were connected. I, I don't, I guess, I, I can say to you that I don't think that my feeling on September 11th, 2001, that I had lost somebody, I don't think that was a coincidence. I think that I truly did feel that in my soul. Somehow my being knew that I had lost somebody. You know, what do you what do you call that sort of feeling or that knowing? Like how does your how does your soul seem to know something that your brain doesn't, if that makes any sense? Whether it was God or, or some something else, I don't know. But I do think that that was a, a, a real feeling. I don't think it can be explained away by, you know, oh it was just somebody with a big imagination trying to explain big feelings away on that day. I don't, I don't think it was that. And, and I think I would say the same thing with, you know, that feeling when I was sitting in the airport too. I do think that, you know, there's some connection between Tom's soul and my own. And there's some, there's some way that he is communicating in, in some form or fashion with me. You know, when I was a freshman in Chicago after I had learned of my relationship with Tom, I'll never forget, you know, back in the, the era of having like a disc man right, before we had iPods and MP3 players and that sort of thing. I had a disc man that had, it was a mix of all these different Foo Fighters songs because I'm a huge Foo Fighters fan and I was, you know, walking to the L to uh, go downtown for one of my classes and the song My Hero came on by the Foo Fighters and as I was listening to it, it was I think right after I'd gotten back to Chicago from Minneapolis for spring break and I thought, wow, like this song sums up how I feel about my father, you know, that he is my hero and you know, just everything about the song just resonated with me in that moment and made me really think about him and it just it was very impactful to me well so you know next song comes on and it's ever long or something like that then it's my hero again and I thought well that's weird you know there's 15 tracks on this disc why is it 
you know, always reverting back to this song again. So then it, you know, plays another one, Monkey Wrench or something like that. And then it goes back to My Hero. So I'm on, you know, on the L, every other song that comes on is My Hero. And that had never happened to me before listening, I mean, listening to this disc that I listened to a million times. And the only way I could explain it to myself was, you know, this is Tom. Like he, he knows that this song resonates with me and he's sending me a message that he's here. I can't see him, but he's here. And apart from those experiences, Tom lives on through his heroism. Here's Mariah reflecting on Tom's last words to Dina while he was on Flight 93. Do something was what, what Tom said. So hit Tom's last words were, don't worry, Dina, we're going to do something. There's a group of us, we're going to do something. And I've sort of stolen those words from Tom and they've become a bit of a mantra for me. And it's anytime I feel discouraged, anytime I feel like I can't move forward with something, I just repeat to myself, do something, just do something. If something's not right, if you, if you feel, you know, that there's some sort of injustice or you feel like something is not going according to plan, don't just sit and complain about it. Don't just wallow about it. It's, you got to do something. You've got to change something. You have to take, you have to take things into your own hands and you have to keep that forward momentum and try to muster all of your energy and, and just rather than getting so discouraged that you quit, just do something. And, and so I, I guess that's the last thing I would say is that that has just become, those two words have become so meaningful in my own life and have truly, uh, I think, changed the course of my own life and the way that I live my life and the way that I interact with other people and the way that I view my ability to change things, uh, I, I just think that those words, while simple, are so significant. And um, there are so many folks, I think, who kind of sit behind a screen and, and they want to complain about the state of things, but you're not, that's not really doing anything. You're just sitting there and complaining. You're not, you're not impacting change. You're not making things better in any meaningful way. And so I guess, you know, if there's, any sort of lesson to be learned from my father on that flight or anything really that I've taken, I would say the biggest thing I've taken with me from learning about him and learning about that flight, it is to do something and to not sit back or rely on other people to do it for you, but to act on your own and to act boldly and decisively. And it's, it's a good lesson for all of us that we have to be agents for positive change and for action. I'm hopeful that I impart those on my children as well. And a big thank you to Mariah for sharing that story. And folks, if you feel compelled to do something, as Mariah just talked about, be sure to check out the Tunnel to Towers Foundation. We told their story in episode one. It's an amazing organization that provides mortgage-free homes to families who've lost loved ones to 9-11-related illnesses, to service in the post-9-11 wars, and to fallen first responders across the country. They also provide smart homes to those who've been catastrophically injured in the line of duty. You can be part of their mission to rescue the rescuers by becoming a Tunnel to Towers member for $11 a month at T2T.org. That's the letter T, 
number two, letter T, dot org. I believe that it's the least we can all do. And to all those who have served our great country in one way or another, from the bottom of our hearts, we thank you, and please stay safe. And now, before we close, a special message from a dear friend of mine. Hi, this is actor Robert John Burke. I've been fortunate to be a part of projects like Tombstone, Law and Order Special Victims Unit, Gossip Girl, Rescue Me. But I've been even more fortunate to become friends with incredible first responders like your host, Nils Jorgensen. Folks who are willing to sacrifice every single one of their tomorrows so that we can have our today. As Nils so powerfully says, I lost a lot of my friends on 9-11, including my best friend. I felt like I had to pick up the flag for them. So I became a volunteer firefighter and I have been ever since. It's why I'm so grateful you're listening to the 20 for 20 podcast. I hope you'll subscribe, rate, and review it, and share it with five friends because these stories are so important. Thanks for listening.